Let's begin this morning in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, we have an event that from the context of of Genesis, you can certainly pull interesting things. Um, But definitely something that in later reflection became very important. And uh, certainly something very important to the author of Hebrews. At the beginning of Genesis 14, you've got where Abram rescues Lot. And so we went through this a few months ago. Essentially, there was a big war. And Lot got captured. And so Abraham pulled his folks together and went and rescued Lot. In verse 17, after this defeat, after Abraham is defeated, Chedar Laomer, or Chedor Laomer, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer, And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. There's a few interesting things about this text. One, um, Abraham um, apparently did have a relationship with the king of Sodom, because he says here, you know, hey, I've, I've lifted my hand and I basically made an oath that I would not take any of your stuff. Uh, does he know the king of Salem? Does he know Melchizedek before this? Another thing that you can, you can see in this text, which is interesting, is that God is clearly working through Abraham, but God is also clearly working through groups outside of Abraham. Right? Because Melchizedek is not related in any way to the Abrahamic story except for right here that we see. He is distinct. He is different. He is from a different city, living in a different place. All right? Yet he is priest of God Most High. All right? So that's interesting. Something here that you that the Jews would find extremely relevant, that we would entirely gloss over, all right? unless we're totally used to looking for it. And that is the fact that this man has no genealogy, right? Genealogies are super important in the Old Testament. Um, That's how you know what your lineage is. That's how you know in Israel's terms how you know what tribe you're from. And very importantly, how you know if you are a Levite, or how you know if you are not only a Levite, but part of the Levitical branch that could theoretically be a high priest, or a priest within the, the tabernacle. And so, for them, a genealogy is extremely important. And there's, actually, by this time, you've already have genealogies, but you've got this guy just out of nowhere. Boom. 
Who's his dad? Nobody knows. Okay. So you've got this, which is curious. Now, not everybody here is in a genealogy, right? So it's, he's not unique to that. Um, I don't think, for example, Chedar Laomer is in a genealogy, right? So he's not truly unique, but he does just sort of appear, all right? Appear as a righteous man. And also do note here that, um, and, and this is something that is might not be particularly significant at the time uh, that King Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Uh, but what Christian thing do we do that involves bread and wine other than just meals, right? Communion, Communion right? Um, this would actually be used by later Christians as they reflect on this passage. As, yes, this is related to communion. Hmm. But finally, the last thing to, I want to point out at this point before we move on to something else is that Abraham paid tithes to this man. Right? This man that appears to be a priest of the most, or, or God most high. Abraham gives a tithe, a tenth of everything to this man. Okay? So this is background. We've read this before. We'll see it again in Hebrews. Now turn to Genesis chapter 22. Okay. Yes, sir. That's right. Abraham's not even made Yes. That, that is a good point. This is, this is pre-Jewish, right? Absolutely. Which... Is, is actually super important for the author of Hebrews' argument. It's, it is a, this is a priestly line that is distinct from genealogies. He was there before Levi. There before Levi. We'll come back to that. Uh, Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. We won't read the whole thing. But I think we know the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. God tells Abram, Abram, you're going to sacrifice your son to me. All right. Now this is... Uh, more than more shocking than normal. All right, a uh, God doesn't ask for human sacrifice, so that's shocking. Uh, it is also shocking to think that somebody would sacrifice their child. It is also shocking that God promised that Abraham would have many heirs. All right, many descendants. All right, and this was the only one that all of those descendants were supposed to come from, and so therefore, triple shocking. God is asking Abram to kill his own son and kill the promise, essentially, that God had made in some way. All right, at least that's how you could perceive it. Now we know from the story that this was a test of Abraham. All right, that. Before he actually, he, he Abram was going through it, but before it happened, God stopped him and says, "No, do not kill your son." Okay. So, uh, if you would look in Genesis 22, starting in verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, "By myself." I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and I have not withheld your son, your only son. 
I will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham, Abraham lived at Beersheba. So we've got the angel of the Lord speaking, which could actually be Jesus. Could be another angel. And he says, and he, he's quoting God, By myself I have sworn, sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. Okay? With all that in mind, please turn to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6. We've had, just as a very quick review, chapter 1, we've got a comparison between Jesus and angels. And Jesus is greater than angels. You've got in chapter 3, you've got an emphasis that uh, Jesus is greater than Moses. And from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way essentially to chapter 4, verse 13, you've got a exegesis of a psalm. He's getting, giving us a sermon. All right, little exegetical study based on a psalm about rest. All right, and he's making the point that essentially if Joshua, right, when they're entering the promised land, was supposed to give them rest, all right, clearly he didn't because here in the psalm uh, they haven't entered the rest. All right, and there's actually a warning there that you must, you need to strive to enter the rest. And so that's becomes very much the basis of a, an exhortation to, the, to the, the Hebrews. You must strive to enter that rest. You must strive by faith, by obedience, to enter into that rest. And from there, up until we get to this point, it's a mix of exhortation to that, Bible study, exhortation to that, with some encouragement thrown in. I feel, I, I feel good about you, Hebrews, in terms of this. But still the exhortation needed to be heard. And so that essentially gets us to where, where we are. And so in chapter 6, we had what we had gone through already. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go into maturity. And then he continues on in his uh, exhortation to fruitfulness. And in verse 13... Actually, let's go back to verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and, in, and patience inherit the promises. And he will come back and give us a litany of those folks here in a few chapters. But, before he does that, he's going to focus on one. Verse 13, and this is where we will discuss in more detail today. For, and, and on the subject of someone who through faith and patience inherited promises, 
For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. For when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, I hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right. So our reading last time out of uh, out of the law should help prepare us for where we're going. All right. Our reading this time is what we'll focus on here in Genesis. So starting back in thirteen, for when God made a promise to Abraham. All right. Since he, when he, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, "Surely I will bless you and multiply you." So, what do we mean by swearing? All right, we're not talking about curse words, right? What are we talking about? An oath, a promise. All right, I promise to do this thing. All right. Um, I swear I'll do it. I swear I'll do it. All right. Now, from this particular standpoint, when you swear, you don't just swear. I will do it. I promise. All right. These kind of oaths were done essentially with a third party. All right. I swear. All right. When I'm talking to, let's say, sequence. If I was making a, a swearing something to Samuel, I would swear something to Samuel and say, "God is my witness." All right. I swear by the Most High God that I will do a thing. And so when you're doing that, is you're invoking that third party, all right, as a witness, and potentially as someone who would do something bad to you if you did not do that thing, all right? That would be the notion. I swear by God that I will do this thing, and the implication, if I don't do this thing, he will punish. Who does God swear by? Right? You, because if you swear, I can't say, Samuel, I swear by this chair that I will do something for you, all right? This chair is inanimate, all right? This chair is, is going to do nothing. Um, and I really wouldn't even swear by, like, let's say, like by Michael, all right? Because we're equals. You swear generally by something greater than you, all right? Now, who is greater than God? Nobody is greater than God. So therefore, God can't swear by something greater than him. He's only got one thing to swear by when he makes an oath. And he does make an oath. All right? And that's essentially himself. All right? And that's the point here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, that, you know, think back to verse, verse 12, right? those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And thus Abraham, who patiently waited obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. All right? If you're not sure if someone would do it, do something, then you make them swear an oath. All right? So instead of just a, I'm going to do the thing, you say, okay, now swear an oath. All right? And if they would swear an oath by God or something else, then you would consider that, okay, that is final confirmation because we all fear God or we all fear the gods. 
All right, so therefore, we will take that as a final confirmation. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to, pa- to hold fast to the hope set before us. All right, so here's my question for you. What are the two unchangeable things here? Read the text and think about it. Because he doesn't say, actually. He, he, you kind of got to think through and kind of draw it out. All right, what's unchangeable? Anybody? God's promise. What's that? God's promise. Okay, how do you argue that? Where do you base that on? His nature, his purpose is unchanging. Okay. So the unchangeable... Prove it with an oath, verse 14. Then, Surely I will bless you. Okay. Surely I will bless you. The unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with the notes, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. So one is most is I mean it says here the unchangeable character of his purpose. So that one's pretty easy to identify, I think, all right? What else? I think that's the second one. Alright? What's unchangeable? God can't lie and the unchangeable nature of his purpose. I think those are the two, right? What does the unchangeable nature of his purpose mean? That's a good question. Um, when, you, when you plan to do something, when you really say, I'm going to do a thing, do you always do it? No. No. And that's because you're human, right? Um, I have the same problem, right? As does everybody in this room. And there's all sorts of reasons why our purpose can and should change. All right. If we have a purpose that is beyond what we are able to fulfill, we should change our goals, right? If I mean that just kind of makes sense, I think, right? So maybe because of lack of ability. We should also sometimes change our purpose, right? When we realize that our purpose was just simply a bad move. It's unwise. Should not do that thing. Then we should totally change our purposes. God is a, doesn't have either of those weaknesses, right? Because one of them is a weakness of our ability. One is our weakness of our what? What's that? Of our wisdom. All right. Our wisdom, our intelligence, uh, weaknesses of our character. There's all sorts of weaknesses that we have to deal with. Where this is how God is ultimately different. All right. And that God's character doesn't change. 
Okay? And so you would say that if, therefore, if God says that he's going to do something, well, his character doesn't change. And so he's going to do that. But then there's another characteristic about God, and that God himself does not lie. All right? And if, that, if he does not lie, but then lied, then he would be changing. All right? But that's the point right here. He, he doesn't lie. It's the unchangeable nature of his, of his character. Unlike a human, he can, whatever he wants to do, he can do. And he's never going to go, all right, you know, I really thought this was a good idea, but I was dumb. All right? This is not a God problem. This is a human problem. So God has an unchangeable character. And God also will not ever lie to us. And so therefore, when God says to Abraham, God, the one with unchangeable character, and says, I swear by myself that I will bless you. All right? From the author of the Hebrews standpoint, he's like, why, why would you have an oath? Because, well, actually, actually, you tell me, why would God make an oath? What is, according to the author of Hebrews, he gives a reason. What's, what's he say? He wanted to show more convincingly. He wanted to show more convincingly. This is not for God. All right? God did not need to swear this thing for himself. He wanted to show it to Abraham. All right? He wanted to show to Abraham more convincingly. Which... You might think, okay, why would God want to do that? Well, remember, all right, that Abraham, well, that was a long time ago, all right? And we know a great deal more about God than Abraham did, right? God has revealed a great deal more to us than Abraham ever knew, even though he's a friend of God. And so when God first starts talking to Abraham, or Abram, all right, what does Abraham know? Does, God, does he know that God is ultimately unchangeable? Would the gods of the nations be changeable? Absolutely. <laughs> the, the, the gods are changeable, all right? Would he know for sure that God is unchangeable? At what point would he learn this, all right? And so when he's talking to Abraham, all right, He's like, I'm going to make this really, really clear to you, ignorant human. All right? I am not only going to say I'm going to do a thing, I'm going to swear by myself that I will do this thing. And so for Abraham, it would actually carry some weight. Where for us, I mean, we might go, well, based on what we know about God, it's no big deal. But we can't assume that Abraham knows what we know. And so, I think that's really ultimately what's going on. Why that? Why why God did that. And so verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And at this point, we're switching context clearly, right? Abraham's time, there is no curtain. All right? We are hundreds of years before curtain. A soul that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever and after the order of Melchizedek. And now he switches to that, that first reading we did, which is Genesis chapter 14. And switches also back to the thing he's already talked about in terms of Melchizedek. This is not our first time to see this. All right? He is... 
essentially thinking back and drawing together the Abrahamic promise and the coming of Christ as a new and greater Melchizedek there in verse 20. So let's move on to chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first... All right, let's, so far, that's just, let me remind you of the story. All right? He's setting context. He is at this point, he has, I mean, he's not interpreting anything. All right? But now he's going to. So he is first, by translation of his name, all right, king of righteousness. All right? So Melchizedek, um, Melech is king, Tzedek is righteousness. So Melchizedek would be king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. All right? So there's, he is, whoever this mysterious figure is, all right, he's got quite the name. All right? He is the king of righteousness. That's, that's kind of a big deal. Um, well, at least, if he really is that, that's what his name means. All right? And he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. That's also kind of a big deal. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, so what you've got to decide, and apparently this is a long-running discussion of who is Melchizedek and what is he, all right? And from my, my reading, I think this argument goes back till before the time of Christ. Is Melchizedek essentially, is he human or is he an angel of some sort? Is he an, an undying being? All right. Like I said, not, not a new thought, certainly not with me. This, this, this argument is over 2,000 years old. I want you to think about the text and try to decide. Because if you read Genesis by itself, you, you totally think, this is a dude. All right, this is a guy. He is the king, all right, Melchizedek, and he is king of Salem. So, and if you read modern commentators, you'll see different, I saw, I read four commentaries, saw three different ways of approaching this particular, this particular verse, all right? So just something for you to think about. So what is he saying here at the verse three? He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but of, of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Let's let's turn and read something. If you would turn to Ezra chapter two. Now Ezra. All right. Well, let's see. What, what's what's our time period? Anybody? This is right. This is right. They they were returning um, from where? From Babylon. All right. So Ezra, chapter 2, 59 through 63. All right. Okay, so uh, rough, what, re, what rough year would we be then if we were returning from exile? What time did exile happen? What year? Here's your time to shine, Abby. 587, 586. All right. And what time did the exile end? 
89. Well, that was before the exile began, because this is BC, so that's oh, unlikely. Backwards. 538. 538, that's right. So 538. So the exile ends at 538 because Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is going to happen shortly after that. All right, so in chapter 3, um, excuse me, chapter 2. So think about the, the situation here, all right? Um, your whole priestly caste, all right? Basically, whenever you're Babylon, you're like, we're going to whip up on those people. Uh, they're going to take the rich people and the powerful people. And one of the things that they took is they took the priestly group, all right? They, they took the powerful and the priestly. That's why Ezekiel is in Babylon. That's why the entire book of Ezekiel is essentially him already in Babylon. This is after the, after the exile. From a practical standpoint, okay, everybody gets to go home after they've been in exile for about 50 years. Okay. Now, who can be priest? Did you keep good records when the Babylonians took you in captivity into this other land. All right? that's, that's essentially the problem that we've got at this point. And so if we go in Ezra chapter 2, uh, let's, let's, yeah, we'll start with, with 59. The following were those who came up from Tel-Malah, Tel-Harshah, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them, that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there had, should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. All right, so, um, you know, follow, these people came up from these various cities. Right? Right? So it's not, just, it's not just the city of Babylon itself, right? I mean, that, you might be able to keep organized if everyone goes to the same city. But Nebuchadnezzar was like, we're going to take you to, to Babylon, and we're also going to send some of you here, some of you here, whatnot. All right, this is going to create chaos, and so that's what we have here. They're they're coming back and they're saying, "We are priests." They are saying, "We we are genealogically descended from these folks." All right, and so they they sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood and clean. All right. They couldn't prove that they were actually descending from particular families. So therefore, what they have to do? Well, you can't do it, is the answer. Right? You cannot be priest until we consult Urim and Thummim. What's that? Stones. God would answer through these. And so it would be very similar to like it's, it's casting, casting lots. All right? And so they, they did not have the records to do this. And so they would use the special way that God had set up in the law all right, to determine these kind of questions. They would consult Urim and Thummim. They would cast lots with those to determine if they were, in fact, priestly. Okay? And so keep in mind that from a priesthood perspective, for them, it was all genealogy-based. Everything was genealogy-based. And so that would be the norm. All right? 
It's all genealogy-based. So therefore, all right, when you've got in the psalm where it says to the king, all right, who is not of the tribe of Levi, I will make you a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And here, when it talks about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right, see his emphasis here. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. At the very least, one major point of this is the Melchizedekian priesthood has nothing to do with genealogy. It is something that God bestows upon whomever he chooses to bestow it on. All right, We've only got three instances of God ever giving this priesthood to anyone. Melchizedek himself, God promises it to the psalmist and here in Hebrews. All right? And God can do it because it's not based on genealogy. So that's one point to ultimately make out of all of this. But before we go back to that verse, I'm going to continue reading a little bit. Verse 4. Uh, back to Hebrews. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. We're done with, with Ezra. So what we're establishing at this point all right, is the nature of this priesthood. This is essentially what the author of Hebrews is trying to, to do. What is the nature of this, this priesthood and why is it fitting for Jesus to be in it? 7.4 See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. So, ah, there's two men here receiving tithes. Melchizedek and Aaron and his descendants. So there's two people receiving tithes. So back to verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who, rec- who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have the, his descent, right, Melchizedek, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It is beyond dispute that the... Okay, so who's inferior, who's, in, who's superior, and who's inferior here? The one who receives the tithes. The one who receives the tithes is superior, and the other one is inferior. So, Melchizedek Abraham? Melchizedek is superior. All right, ironic high priesthood, superior to those they receive tithes from. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, Aaron and his children. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. He lives. All right. Abraham, uh, Aaron. He lives? Aaron's dead. All right. But in the other case, by one who testifies that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek 
met him. Now, from a general theological note, all right, um, the, 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 the scriptures sometimes speak in such a way, whereas there's this basic notion, and this notion is called federal headship. And what that means is that someone who is the head of another in some way, that when they do something, the effect passes to them, whether or not they've been born or not. You can see this in some ways. All right? Some people will argue this is, this is the explanation between Adam and all of his descendants. All right? Why did everyone after Adam get corrupted? Is it because they were physically descended from Adam? Some people will say that. Is it because they were under the what would be called the federal headship of Adam? Adam was the first man. All of all humans were in him after that, and so therefore for affected. And so the two different views on that, right? And ultimately, you see the same kind of notion here. All right, it's when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Aaron was giving tithes to Melchizedek. And so therefore, all of the tithes that Aaron received, all of them were giving tithes ultimately to Melchizedek. All right? And so Melchizedek is greater or lesser than Aaron. Melchizedek is greater than Aaron because he received tithes from Aaron. All right? That's your theological point there. And um, let's, let's read on the next paragraph. We won't go through this in detail, and we will go back to discuss more if we have time today, which it doesn't look like we will. Now, the perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Not if, clearly not. For under it, people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Basic point, if that... If that priesthood was good enough, why is there a need for another? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord... All right, so there, now we're talking about Jesus, all right? Jesus did not descend from, Le- from the Levitical priesthood line. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He, excuse me, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. That's the second time that's been mentioned. It's called indestructible life here. If you go back to verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. Same exact point. So he's coming right back to that. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand... Is Aaron a priest forever? No, he dies. In the Aaronic priesthood, you lose your priesthood when you die. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So the thing to think about in terms of Melchizedek for next time is really this question. When he's drawing a comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, all right, what are all the things that he's drawing? He's drawing a very strong contrast between Aaron and Melchizedek. All right? Melchizedek, greater. Melchizedek, beforehand. All right? It is testified of him that he lives. It is not testified of, Abra- uh, of Aaron that he lives. All right? He, he loses his priesthood on death. So that's something to think about, which we'll discuss next time, because we don't have enough time to go through it anymore this time. Any questions about anything that we've covered in this text? If it's too much, we'll just pun it till next time. Getting yes, Jim? God's unchanging nature of his purpose. Trying to find out a way to word this, because it goes back to God's uh, testing of Abraham mm-hmm. by commanding him to give up Isaac as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. What was this co-person doing there? Was it to. <coughs> Since Adam was willing to give up his son, God would be willing to give up his son. So since Abraham was willing to so give up his son, you mean? Yeah. Kind of a contract. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the primary... You know beforehand that Abraham would be willing. Yes, I do believe so, right? But still a test. And God... I mean, think about this, right? God, if God knows what's going to happen then God does not need this knowledge. Now here's my question. Is Abraham bettered by this experience? Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, Are all the descendants of Abraham, whether they are physically or spiritually, especially the spiritual descendants of Abraham, are we bettered by this? Yeah, we see this faith example. Uh, But I, I do think that's Secondary. I think the main thing was this was something for Abraham, all right? Something God was doing for his friend. And let's let's draw this out. Let's let's see your faith in action, all right? Let's see your faith in action. And then at the last moment, I will intervene and say, I see that you would not withhold your one and only son. Now, is that does Abraham at that point become a type of God himself? And the answer to that is, yes, he absolutely does. What do you mean when you say he becomes a type of God? Hmm. So whenever we talk about somebody or something being a type, what do we say? Generally speaking. Like an archetype. All right, you've got a pattern from before, and this pattern is seen later. All right, and the one beforehand, all right, is often only going to make sense when you see the, the later one, all right? The, the, the fuller, better one. That's the idea. And this is all in Hebrews, all right? Um, the, the, the tabernacle itself, all right? The tabernacle is a type. It is not a type of the temple in Jerusalem, though you could say it was, in a sense. What's it a type of, theologically? 
according to the author of Hebrews, what is the tem- a tabernacle a temple of, uh, a type of? The, the heavenly throne room, the, the heavenly tabernacle. And so you've got, why, why was there a tabernacle? Well, because God wanted to later reveal some other things, so you can see that, oh, well, this notion here will help us learn about this other notion. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing exegetically. All right? This is why he is about to launch into a discussion of the tabernacle. So he can say that the tabernacle was a type of the heavenly tabernacle, all right? and the Aaronic priest was a type of Christ, who is not like Aaron, but like Melchizedek, who basically made all sorts of changes to the situation going forward, and that's one of the major points of the epistle. And so a type is something that is fuzzy at one point, that, goes, that points to something in the future, even though you may not know it points to something in the future. And then when that thing happens, you look back at it and go, okay, Abraham was like God, because Abraham was willing to give up his son. So you're not saying Abraham became a god like thee. That's right. That's what I thought you were saying. Yeah, Abraham is a is an image of God. All right, and if we think about it, what's the why do we exist? What are Adam, Adam was made in the image of God. All right, what are we supposed to be? People in the image of God. We are supposed all supposed to be reflections of God. So to say that that Abraham at that point was being an image of God is not something that actually should be truly unique and noteworthy, right? Because that is ultimately what we are all supposed to do, though we fail, right? Because of Adam and because of ourselves. Can't entirely blame it on Adam. Um, So we are all, in that sense, imagers of God, just like Abraham was an imager of God whenever he was willing to give up his son, just as God was willing to give up his son, except that right, God actually gave up his son for us, where Abraham did not have to. Right? Still a type, still an image of what God would do, but God went further than what Abraham had to ultimately do, and then he gave us his son.